You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Father God, we come to you, Lord. I thank you so much for this time of worship, Lord, we could draw close to you, Lord. Father, I pray as your servant comes to break the bread of life to us, God, I pray that you just fill in with your spirit, God, that you would settle anything in him that's not um, the dizziness or whatever is going on, Lord. Lord, that you would just take care of him. And Lord, let him be a voice piece that you can use this morning, Lord. I thank you so much for a place we can come and feel your presence, Lord. I love you, Lord, and I give you honor, Lord, for what's going to happen in this place today. Lord, if there's someone here today that doesn't know you, God, I pray that they won't leave this place without making sure that you're Lord of their life. We love you and we praise you in your name. We pray. Amen. Well, you can remain standing. Why don't you remain standing? And I invite you to take your Bibles. I want you to turn to Nehemiah 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Thank you, Sheila. Uh, I'm, I feel a little drunk, but I haven't been drinking. Maybe I need to do what the Apostle Paul said, take a little wine for my stomach ailment. So, uh, but anyway, no, I'm, I'm teasing with you. But I've, I've been battling with a little bit of dizziness, so I would appreciate your prayers this morning. Nehemiah chapter uh, 9, and we'll begin at verse 1, and just read just a little bit. And then uh, just another short prayer. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth. And I've, I've titled this message, Confession, the Work of Repentance. Okay, Confession, the Work of Repentance. We're going to talk about confession today. But this is the background, this is the backdrop of, of this particular passage of Scripture. On the 24th day of the same month, that's the seventh month, that month of celebration, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth, having dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and they did what? What did they do? And confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were. They read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for the quarter of the day. They spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Let's pray together. Again, we thank you, God. We pray for the power of your Holy Spirit to be with us. And Lord, I want to especially pray for Philip today. Uh, Lord, as we were singing, because he lives, I thought this past week as Philip gave up his dad, was at a funeral this past week for his father. Lord, I lift up Philip and Amy to you now, Amy's dad in the hospital. I pray, dear Lord, that you would wrap your arms around them and comfort them and remind us all, dear Lord, of the losses that we have, that we don't lose those loved ones. We know where they are. We praise you, dear Lord. We, there may be others that are hurting in this room. We pray that you'll minister to them. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Max Licato writes, and I want you to listen closely to this. He said, confession does for the soul what preparing land does for the field. Before the farmer sows seed, he works the acreage, removing the rocks, pulling up stumps. He knows that seed grows better if the land is prepared. Now listen closely. Max Licato says this. He said, confession is the act of inviting God to walk the acreage of our hearts. There is a rock of greed over here. Father, I can't budget. And that tree of guilt near the fence, its roots are long and deep. And may I show you some dry soil that is too crusty for the seed. God's seed, now listen to this, grows better if the soil of the heart is cleared. Wow. 
Isn't that great? Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, present day religion is far too often, it far too often soothes the conscience instead of awakening it. Now listen again. Present day religion far too often soothes the conscience instead of awakening it. It produces a sense of self-satisfaction and eternal safety rather than a sense of our unworthiness. Wow, isn't that a great quote? Well, chapters 8 and 9, we've looked over the last couple of weeks, is a pivotal moment in the life of these exiles. These are Israelites, these are Jews that have been in bondage under under the Assyrians, under the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, under Darius and the Medes and the Persians, principally the Persians. And now the Persians have allowed them to return back. In chapter 8 and 9, specifically chapter 9, is a pivotal moment in the history of Israel. This past week, just a few days ago, I was with uh, Eric Seals and, and, and Sarah and their family as Lindsay was having uh, surgery, Eric's younger sister, 28 years old, she was dealing with a very, very difficult type of cancer. We did not know the outcome. In fact, we gathered there at UMC in the hospital in that area waiting where the family waits and we gathered in a circle with Lindsay and we prayed. Soon there was an African-American man that was about to have major surgery himself. He looked at Sarah and said, could you get your pastor to come speak to me? And I went over and knelt by him and prayed with that family. People are hurting. But at one point, Lindsay, Eric, she was just wringing those hands, just wringing those hands. Sheila does that. And I looked at her and I knelt down beside her, beside her and I said, Lindsay, my dad had the same cancer nearly 25 years ago. He had major surgery, but he is alive today. And I said, Lindsay, it was a life-changing event for him. It was a theophany. It was an awakening. My dad never changed after that. He's been a different man since battling with cancer. And I said to Lindsay, and I believe it will be for you as well. Chapters 8 and 9 are the exiles. They have returned. They have cleaned up the ruins. They have rebuilt the walls. They've rebuilt their homes. And we said last week, that when you get to chapter 8 and 9, it's kind of in 52 days, they've accomplished this great task. And now Nehemiah and Ezra look at each other, the one who had guided the building project, Ezra the priest and the prophet who had been there, the spiritual leader for already 13 years. They look at each other and they realize something. We have right now a walled-in nothing. And we said last week that if a church is not careful... It can be a walled in nothing, a community of believers that are living behind a fortress and outside is the enemy, but also the community. And a church must always be focused, you and I individually and even corporately, what's inside of us. Does that make sense? Last week we said there's a real danger. You remember? Number one, we said we can be identified by what, by what we're against. We can be identified by our walls, what we are against, who the enemy is, what we don't do, what we don't say, where we don't go. And that is dangerous, especially if you're a young parent. And I counseled young parents last week, you parent by faith, not by fear. If you parent by fear, then you will build a, a maze of walls around your children and you'll never entrust them into the care and the counsel of Christ. Let me tell you what's far more important as a young parent. Rather than teaching your children what you do and don't do, introduce them to Jesus Christ every single moment of every day. My kids used to look at me and they go, oh, here it goes again, another lesson. But every lesson was a spiritual lesson. 
My counsel would be to parents is instead of creating a maze of walls in which you're trying to keep your children out of this and out of that, don't do this, don't do that, don't go here, don't go there, don't hang around with those people. You know, if you do that, the danger is they rebel against it. Introduce your children to Jesus Christ. He will come in, he'll take the law that you're trying to put on the outside, he'll put it inside their heart, as Jeremiah 31 says, and he'll be the paraclete. That is the comforter, the counselor. He'll guide them rather than the walls that you've tried to establish in their life. Does that make sense? Do you understand? And all God's parents said, amen. Amen. Now, when you get to chapter 8 and chapter 9, in chapter 8, they bring out the Word of God. They they read the Word of God. Ezra reads the Word of God. They implement some of those, uh, some of those festivals, the Feast of Trumpets, that, that time when they, when they were leaving Egypt and they were de- being delivered out of slavery. They were being redeemed. When that happened, the sound of the trumpet was heard. When on Mount Sinai, Moses received the law, the blast of the trumpet was sounded. At the beginning of every new month, at that, at, there was the sound of the trumpet. The trumpet was very critical to the Israelite people. But listen, since they had gone into bondage, since they had been exiled, they had not heard the trumpet at all. Now the trumpet was being sounded. And we said last week, even Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 13, he said, and there'll be the trump of God. When it sounds, we'll be called up together with them in the air. In other words, the rapture of the church. And then we talked about the Feast of the Tabernacles, that time when they were wandering in the wilderness, when they had come out of Egypt, but they were not yet in the Promised Land. They celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. They went up, they began to get olive branches, and they began to build these temporary dwellings. And then they celebrated the Day of Atonement, the Passover. I said this, and let me read it, in modern day an analogy. A modern day analogy would be like the United States taken over by a, former govern- by a foreign government. Imagine if the United States were defeated by another nation, by a foreign government. They came in, they confiscated our Bibles, they tore down our churches, they stopped the observance of all Christian holidays and celebration. No more Christmas, no more Easter no more Lord's Supper and then finally we want our independence our children our grandchildren come right back here and Ethan stands up my grandson stands up behind this pulpit RJ is standing next to him And they are leading a remnant of people who are now putting the ruins of this church back together, bringing the community of believers back together again. And as these two men, black and white, stand side by side, there's a brokenness to the nation. There's a spiritual hunger and thirst as it sweeps out through this community and across this city. It's Christmas Eve. And R.J. stands with his Bible, a Bible they found under the rubble of this platform here. And he begins to read Luke chapter 2, the Christmas story, and people stand and begin to weep. Your grandchildren are standing. In chapter 8, that's exactly what happened. Ezra read the book of the law. He began to talk about the feast of trumpets and the feast of the tabernacles and the atonement. And all of a sudden the people stood and they began to weep for hours. And Ezra and Nehemiah said, stop, don't weep. This is a time of celebration. It would be the equivalent of while RJ is reading, Ethan goes, stop, don't cry. Christmas is a celebration. Let's eat together in fellowship like we did when we were children. This is a day of celebration. It commemorates our Savior, the Messiah. Let's go out and eat and let's invite those that are less fortunate and bring them to our table and let's have a time of celebration. But now that time is over. And in chapter 9, the celebration now turns to confession. 
This topic, confession, is critical to a believer. One writer said confession is critical to the believer, to the follower of Christ, because number one, it keeps us in a right fellowship with God. Number two, it alleviates built-up guilt. And listen as he goes on to say, just because a Christian, a believer, a follower of Christ is forgiven and pardoned and redeemed, it it doesn't mean there is no necessity for confession. We are instructed to confess our sins. Take a right out of Nehemiah and go to 1 John all the way toward the back of your Bible 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Because this is so powerful. This is written by John the Beloved, the disciple that was closest to Jesus. But listen to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. I love this. Because John writes to these early believers who were suffering. He said, that which was from the beginning. He's talking about Jesus, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. Everybody look this way. John was writing to these early believers. He was John the beloved. He said, listen, we heard him with our ears. He said, we touched him. Imagine the woman with the issue of blood. You remember that? When she got up that morning, she had been battling with an illness for 12 years. She probably felt about like I do today. But her thought was that morning, if I could just get close enough to touch him, just brush the hem of his garment, I'd be healed. And she did. And she was. John said, we touched him. He wasn't a figment of our imagination. No, after he was resurrected, I was there. I was there. I was there. I I put my hands, I I put my fingers in those scars in his hands. I saw that that scar on his feet. I saw, he lifted up. He showed me where where the Roman soldier, we touched him. We handled him. But then he gets over to verse 9. Because down at verse 5 he says, This is the message we've heard from him. We declared to you God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not live by the truth. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves and the truth is not in us. And look at verse 9. If we confess our what? Sins. If we confess our sins, he is what? What is he? He's faithful. What is he? And just. And will what? Forgive us. Our sins and what? And purify us from how much righteousness? All, I mean, all unrighteousness. How much unrighteousness? All of it. So confession, two points here. Confession is a practical exercise in the life of a believer. For you and I to be effective, to be a follower of Christ, to be sold out to Christ, we have to constantly be in this platform, on this platform, or in this, uh, uh, in this place of always being willing to confess. John says, John the Beloved uses the word here, homologeo in the Greek. Homologeo, it's that idea, uh, homo, uh, homo, of homogeneous. It's the idea uh, of something being together or or being alike. You remember in The Gladiator, I love that. Russell Crowe, you remember, he's down in the bottom and they're getting ready to go into battle in The Gladiator. And he turns to these others and he said, how many of you have ever fought in war? And few, you see these old rough men, you know, they've got their mask, they've got their weapons, they've got their shield. And he looks at them and he says, as one. And he's the leader. 
And all of a sudden you see them as they're coming up. And, and it's the battle of Carthage. They are supposed to lose the battle. But something goes tragically wrong because Russell Crowe, you remember, he shouts, as one! And all of a sudden those men make a circle with their backs against an imaginary circle and they're down and their shields are locked like a Roman soldier knew to do. They would lock their shields one next to the other as one. This is exactly what homologeo means. Confession is when you and I are as one with God about our sin. Boy, isn't that power. Lagos, homologeo, to agree, to say the same word. This is the equivalent when you're raising teenagers. And if you're a young parent here, let's stop and pray for you right now. No, I'm teasing. The teenager will lie in a minute. I don't know what happens, but James Dobson said when kids become teenagers... Put them in a barrel with a hole in it and feed them through the hole. He said when they turn 16, plug up the hole. Don't even feed them. But this is the teenager who the parent knows is guilty, who's done something wrong, and they finally come and they admit it to the parent. They agree with the parental authority. This is exactly what homologeo means. Lagos, we agree with God and we're saying the same thing about our sin. In the grammar, this is grammar. Uh, it, it's in the iterative uh, uh, present, I believe, or the present. It's the idea of habitual or regular action. It is a repeated confession of sin. Does this mean I always have to confess? Look this way. Everybody, kids, yes. When Jesus, when his disciples said, Lord, teach us how to pray. We want to teach us to pray like John, John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. Jesus said, okay, men. He said, gather around. All them old rough, Philip, all them old rough fishermen, they all gathered around him. He said, okay, guys, look this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You remember when I was talking about where your line's drawn? I talk, brought up language and GD. You can't hallow his name if you're listening to everybody GD it. It's the first thing out of God's mouth, out of Jesus' mouth, hallow his name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread as we forgive, uh, 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 give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. You know what he was saying in a model prayer? He was simply saying this, and my mind may be so messed up, I may have messed up. What he was saying was this. He was saying you're always going to have to ask for forgiveness. Every time you pray. Well, no, I preach. I don't know about that. You know, I've been doing pretty good here lately. I ain't watched no bad shows. I ain't said nothing bad. I ain't lost my temper. I'm doing pretty good. Well, while you're thinking that, you're being arrogant and filled with pride, so go ahead and confess that. The picture here is, is that this is the, in the present simple. It's the equivalent in a grammatical language. It's this. It's saying, I play ball. Present continuous, I am to be. I am playing ball. So the, the grammatical structure here is simply this. First John, John the Beloved was saying that confession is a continual practice in the life of a believer. You remember when Jesus was washing feet? He's going around. He bends down there by John the Beloved. He's washing his feet, has a towel. He's drying his feet, doing that act of a servant. He gets away. Now he's coming around to who? He's coming around to Peter. What's Peter thinking? He ain't going to wash my feet. He gets around there to Peter. Peter pulls his feet back. He said, Lord, you're not going to do that. You're not going to wash my feet. Jesus looked at him and said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have no part of my kingdom. Peter said, well, then wash me from head to toe. I mean, just give me a bath. Jesus said, there's no need. You've already been bathed. All we got to do is wash your feet. Now, everybody stay with me here. Jesus was teaching a spiritual principle. The only part of Peter that was dirty was his feet. Because his feet is what comes in contact with the world. 
What he was saying is, Peter, you're already clean, but your feet got dirty by walking around out there in the dirt. Listen, you and I are going to homologeo. We're going to constantly be confessing to God because we're daily getting dirty by a lost, sinful world. It's part of it. Ain't nobody perfect here, including me. So this is what was happening in Nehemiah chapter 9. The exiles, listen to this, they were catching up on confession. They were catching up on their confession. Let me ask you something. Are you called up on your confession? One writer said, confession is coming clean before God and is critical to the daily life of a believer. Confession of sin is the first step toward renewal, revival in the life of a believer. He went on to say, imagine a business partner you have who is trying to restore a relationship with you while he's embezzling funds. You and I cannot build, we cannot rebuild, we can't restore, we can't can't even repent. We can't be revived without confession. I love what Albert Barnes says here, uh, Reggie. He said about this passage in, in Nehemiah 9, he said the festival was probably, you remember the seventh month, was probably from the 15th to the 21st. He said on the 22nd of the seventh month, they gave everybody a day off. Now listen, listen to as the, the reason he said this. He said they rested on the 22nd day because they were getting ready to begin, listen to this, the work of repentance. Wow. Stan and I listen to AFR. We've been listening to a particular pastor, a very prominent 1130, right there at noontime. Uh, a great pastor, a great preacher. Uh, Stan, I was listening this past week when he, and Stan asked me, he said, isn't it strange? Or did you, you know, Stan knew better to ask it, but he basically was saying, have you been listening to this guy? Did you get that idea? And I said, no, Stan. I said, that is the power of God's Holy Spirit. I find that a lot of times when I'm preaching to you, I'll cut on Rogers, I'll listen to David Jeremiah, I'll hear this man, that man, and I'll find myself in a chorus of voices all over this country that is saying the same thing. But in uh, that particular individual who comes on at 11.30 on AFR, he says when he looks at chapter 9, he said, it teaches me one thing, that God is good. And I agree. When you read chapter 9, God is good, but God is sovereign and man is sinful. Confession is a practical exercise in being an effective follower of Christ. Second point, confession is a personal exercise in being an effective follower of Christ. Have you ever had somebody apologize to you that didn't mean it? You ever been in a workplace or been somewhere, somebody gave you the shaft, did you in, did something wrong, and they came back to apologize and they didn't mean it. How do you know they didn't mean it? First of all, and I got one of these a while back, first of all, they're, try- they're still trying to make a point. You ever have those people, I'm, I'm sorry, but now let me say again, <laughs> whoa, when they say that, you know, you just get ready to do the dog and pony show again. Secondly, they may not, they're, they're, they're either still trying to make a point or they're so specific and vague in general, you really don't know if they're apologizing at all. It, let, let me give you an example. You ever had somebody come up to you and say, you know, and I've tried this with Sheila and it don't work. Sheila get mad at me, I've done something, I'm trying, you know, sometimes I really know what I did. But I don't want to own up to it. So what I'll say is, Sheila, if I've ever done anything to hurt you. You ever do that? Somebody ever come up to you and say, well, you know, if I, if I did anything to hurt, oh yeah, you did do something to hurt me. Sometimes we get very vague. You know what God likes about confession? Homologeo, lagos, the same word is when you and I agree with God practically and specifically about a sin or a stronghold in our life. God is the same. God requires specific personal accountability, real and raw and honest and intimate and, and, and personal. 
In fact, let me, let me read to you real quickly. Let me read to you out of the, out of the message, verses 16 through 19. This is Eugene Peterson. It's kind of a paraphrase. But I want you to listen because he does a good job here. This is the people. They are confessing corporately as a body of believers. They, he starts off, verse 16, but they, our ancestors, were arrogant, bullheaded. They wouldn't obey your commands. They turned to death. Now this is, hey, listen, this may be what Ethan and uh, RJ are doing up here about 70 years from now after we're all uh, asterisk at the bottom of Americans, America's history, if that analogy were to be true. They turned a deaf ear. Now they're talking about their ancestors, their forefathers. They turned a deaf ear. They refused to remember the miracles you had done for them. They turned, a, they, they turned stubborn. They got it into their heads to return to their Egyptian slavery. And you, a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, incredibly patient, with tons of love, you didn't dump them. Yes, even when they cast a sculpted calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and continued from bad to worse. You in your amazing compassion didn't walk off and leave them in the desert. The pillar of cloud didn't leave them daily. It continued to show them the route. The pillar of fire did the same by night, showed them the right way to go. Let me read on. Verse 20, you gave them your good spirit to teach them to live wisely. You never stinted with your manna. You gave them plenty of water to drink. You supported their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Everything they needed, they got. Their clothes didn't wear out. Their feet never blistered. You gave them kingdoms, people, established generous boundaries. They took the countries of Sion, king of and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied children for them, rivaling the stars in the night sky. You brought them into the land that you promised their ancestors. They would get and they owned it. Well, they entered all right. They took it and settled in. The Canaanites who lived there, you brought to their knees before them. You turned over their land, their kings, their people to do with as they pleased. They took strong cities, fertile fields. They took over well-furnished houses, cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, lush, extensive orchards. They ate. They grew fat on the fat of the land. They reveled in their bountiful goodness. But then they mutinied, rebelled against you throughout your laws killed your prophets the very prophets you prophets you tried to get them the very prophets who tried to get them back on your side and then things went from bad to worse you turned them over to their enemies wow real quickly verse 17 is powerful and honest and I'll close in a moment but I want you to see this in Nehemiah, and I've lost my place, in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17, it says, verse 16, but our forefathers were arrogant, stiff-necked, did not obey your commands. They refused to listen. They failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked. And then their rebellion, they appointed a leader in order to return them to their slavery. You remember that? Confession is specific. These people corporately are very specific. Picture again that analogy. We've been invaded by a foreign country. We've been living in bondage. Some of us have been exiled. We've died in a foreign land. And finally, Ethan and RJ and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren are standing back in this place and the church is being reestablished in this country, in this community. And Ethan and R.J. are standing here. And they look at the people and said, I tell you what the problem was. Our fathers and our grandfathers, they were a sorry, good-for-nothing bunch. They put us in the mess we were in. They were fat. They were lazy. They lived on the wealth of the land. They had it easy. They griped and complained. They rebelled against God. They took four vacations a year. They lived the life the way they wanted to live. They turned their back on God. And that's why we ended up in the mess that we're in. This is the reason for the ruins. And we don't want to go there again. There's a principle. There's a principle here. Because he goes on to say they elected leaders that would lead them where they wanted to go rather than where they needed to go. 
Verse 25 and 26, and we'll close after this. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses that were filled with all kinds of good things. What he's talking about, they were blessed in every way possible. Verse 26, but they were disobedient and they rebelled against God. They put God's law behind their backs. They killed God's prophets. And in essence, they continued in their blasphemy. Wow. They look back not to gloat over the past, but to relish, and not to relish the rich history, but they look back to confess the waywardness of their forefathers. My great-grandfather murdered a man. His name was Jesse. My great-grandfather's name was Jesse. He murdered a man over a plow. They had a community plow. Sometimes poor people couldn't afford, afford a plow, so they'd go in together to have a plow. And, and, and it came time for my grandfather, my great-grandfather, to use this plow. He had the plow, and, and a man came with his son, and he said, uh, he said I want the plow. My, grand, my great-grandfather said, it's not time for the plow. Uh, I, I've still got a couple more days here. And the man said, look, I want the plow now. And the man said, I'm going back. Me and my son, we're going to get a gun. We're going to come back and kill you. When they came back, my, grandfather, my great-grandfather killed him before he got the plow. He went to jail. He escaped from jail. He ran from prison. He was on the run. He was an outlaw. When he was two years old, guess what city he lived in? What town? Brandon. Brandon. My first cousin at a family reunion was telling me this story. He said, our, he said, our great-grandfather escaped, ran from the law, and stayed on the run. He had two daughters. One of them was my grandmother, and the other was my grandmother's sister. He had two girls. One day, one of the daughters got angry because he wouldn't let her go out with a particular guy, and she turned him into the law. And he ended up, he didn't have a good bell bondsman guy. <laughs> he ended up dying in jail in Brandon. Well, he died, I think, in Louisiana, but he had been in jail in Brandon. My cousin then looked at me and he said this. He said, uh, he said I, I, I even have newspaper articles because it, it, was, a big, it was big news back then. Our great-grandfather, whose daughter turned him in because she wouldn't allow him to go out with a certain guy, and he spent the rest of his life in prison, and he died in prison. And he said, oh, by the way, their parents... He said, our great-grandfather, his parents, they're buried somewhere around Brandon. I said, where? He said, uh, Fannin? Is it Fannin? I preached for several times at First Baptist Fannin, and isn't it interesting that I never knew that my great-great-grandparents, the parents of my great-grandfather, who died in prison because he murdered a man, were buried right out in the cemetery in the church that I was preaching in. You may say, well, why, why, why say that? Well, because sometimes sin is generational. Sheila, what did I have when I met you that was very, very bad? She said, I didn't have a bad temper. I had a violent temper. In college, I got in a fight. The police came to arrest me, and they carried the guy that I fought to the hospital. Why say all that? Because these people understood generational sin. And Ezra and Nehemiah knew this, if we do not stop it, it'll continue. Well, where does that bring us? Because I had plenty of more, but we don't, we don't have time. The people come to all the way down to verse 36. And you know what they say? They say, God, we're in distress. A land where we ought to be enjoying the promised land, we're in distress. God help us. Let's stand. I want to read to you something. It's called a guilty plea brings freedom. A guilty plea brings freedom. 
The banner headline across the top of one of Chicago Tribune read, Guilty Plea Sets Inmate Free. The picture showed the free man, the freedman, embracing his sister, and the article told how a man in prison for eight years cut a deal with the state's attorney office in which the time served would satisfy his sentence. Now this is a preacher. This is a man being honest. He said, what struck me was that headline. Guilty plea brings freedom. He said, my first reaction was, well, another criminal gets off with a plea bargain. Then I realized that what, was, that what, was hap- that what happened to me, then I realized that, what, that was what happened to me, that, that was what had happened to him. He said, a guilty plea sets inmate free. He said, freedom is not a plea of innocence. But, in it, but is an admission of guilt. And he went on to say, he said, my story as a follower of Jesus Christ is exactly the same. Homo legeo. I agree with God as to my sin and my fallenness. My guilty plea sets me free. Let me ask you a question this morning. Two weeks ago, we had three people come forward. I told you Ayla came and gave her life to Christ. Crystal gave her life to Christ. Buddy came forward. Last week, we had a young, uh, a young man in our church who came and gave his life to Christ. But let me ask you something this morning. Are you ready? Listen to me. Everybody listen. If God spares America... Our problem is not Tuesday. We're not fixing nothing Tuesday. If God spares America, as Ruth Graham told Billy, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. We're in a critical time in our life. And while we're packing away the cash and setting apart CDs and setting up our retirement, looking to get comfortable. I like what John Piper said. He said, some of us are going to get there and stand before God. And the only thing we're going to have to show is our time in a Winnebago traveling around collecting shells. And we'll be saying, Lord, here, I want you to see my shell collection. I dream this. Remember, young men see visions, old men see dreams, so I'm an old man. I dreamed a couple of weeks ago, vivid dream, that I was watching the weather report and it said it's going to rain on Wednesday. Now you may not think, well, that was just wishful thinking, but the reality is, is that uh, that's all it was and I woke up. I thought, well, that's nothing. Now I am the kind of person I tend to read my Bible, pray, and so when I go to sleep, I wonder if God sometimes will not speak or say something to me. Well, last Friday I went to sleep And I dreamed that our nation was in a catastrophic war of such magnitude, it it literally was beyond my imagination. In fact, it was like the ground was just erupting in violence and just, just war. I woke up. That our grandchildren, four of our grandchildren had spent the night. Sheila was sleeping with the grandchildren. So I woke up from that dream and I was visibly shaken. I cut the, cha- I cut the TV on. The weather channel was on and it said it's going to rain this Wednesday. Last night I went to bed. And I dreamed that I was standing by a bed. It was a stream bed. It was dry and it was low. Sheila and I, we were standing up on the bank and we looked down and there was a lion. And this lion, it looked like Aslan, you know, in the Narnia Chronicles. And this lion was looking at Sheila and I. And I was standing there and I was holding a blanket, almost like Linus, Charlie Brown. And I looked down at this lion. This lion was looking up at us. And I looked at Sheila. I said, Sheila, we're in trouble. 
I said, I said, this line comes up on this bank. I said, we're going to have to get out of here. I said, I don't know what to do, but throw this blanket over the lion's face. Or, I don't know, you know. And all of a sudden, the lion comes up, and he's standing there, Sheila, and he's just looking at us. And then he circles around us. Then I wake up. Tuesday is not the issue. Well, two worldviews are colliding, and I don't think uh, anything will turn us around in the near future. Chances are we're going to elect somebody that will probably restructure, continue to restructure the Supreme Court to take our religious conscience, our religious freedoms, to continue, continue to kill the unborn and ultimately to continue the LGBT movement. In 2012, I basically lost all hope. The question this morning is not who the next president will be. The question is not whether this country will eventually be invaded by a foreign government or whether something's getting ready to happen on the world stage. The question is this, are you ready for it? Now, I didn't ask, were you financially stable? I ask you this, are you ready, possibly, either to go through a crisis or are you ready when you die to stand before the Lord? Have you given your life to Christ? Do you know it? Has there come a moment in your life when you, when you looked up and you said, Hamalageo, God, I confess, I'm a sinner. I've done a lot of things I shouldn't. But I know that if I make a guilty plea right now that I'll be forgiven and pardoned because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So right now, God, I repent. Hey, listen, I don't feel good right now. And you may think, man, I'm going to get this service over with. I'm bored. I'm ready to move on. You'll move on. But you can be rest assured the words you're hearing right now, you can be rest assured that the children and the grandchildren and the young people who hear these words will remember them one day. The question this morning is, are you ready? Do you know Christ? Have you come to that point? I didn't ask, were you a church member? I didn't ask whether you were baptized. I didn't ask whether your name was on, the, on, on, a, on a roll here at the church. I asked, has your name ever been written in the Lamb's Book of Life? Have you repented of your sin, confessed and said, Lord, I'm guilty, I'm a sinner. And I agree with you, homo we're saying the same thing. You're saying, God, Jeff, you're guilty. God, I agree, I'm guilty. That guilty plea brings me a pardon. And I ask you to come into my heart, forgive me and cleanse me. Hey, listen, a moment ago I could hardly stand up. I'm so rotten dizzy, I don't feel good. But you know what I think? When we're singing these songs, and some of them were so powerful, especially coming up on the election. I was thinking to myself, God, I'm ready. Hey, if I drop dead right now, I'm ready. Are you ready? And if you're not ready, settle it right now. Give your life to Christ. Repent of your sin. Confess. Say, Lord, come in. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you and we pray, dear Lord, and Lord, if there's a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, a young person, who right now, they, they, they listen to the preaching of your word. Maybe they're nervous. Maybe they're anxious. Maybe they wonder and think, I, you know, I don't know if I'm ready or not. Maybe they look at their life and it's a wall, did nothing. Oh, they've got good behavior and they know what not to do, what not to look at, what not to say, who not to hang around with. They've, done, they've turned over a lot of leaves. They've, leaves. they've made a lot of corrections. They've had a lot of New Year's resolutions. They've had a lot of self-discipline. And they've made some progress, but they are walled in nothing. There's nothing inside but emptiness. Lord, I pray for that person here today who doesn't know. 
And I pray, dear Lord, that right now your Holy Spirit would come around them. I pray that you'd break down those walls and those barriers. That you'd go deep within that heart right now. And you would begin to do something. As they're looking to you, desperate, crying out, saying, God, that's me. I'm guilty. I'm ashamed of my life. I'm ashamed of how I behaved. But right now, I'm reaching out to you, Lord Jesus. Lord, may you just open up that old crusty heart. Allow the seed of the gospel to permeate and fall in there and germinate and take root. And we pray, dear Lord, if there's one here that needs to give their life to Christ, that they would come even now. As Reggie's here, as Ledge is here, as I'll be here at the front, as even now as these men are coming, that they would say, I'm coming today. I want to be a Christian. I want to be saved. I want to ask Jesus to come into my heart. I'm not turning over a new leaf. I'm giving up my life to Christ. For there are others in this room who need to spend some time in confession. They've kind of gotten dirty, soiled. The stains of this old world, sin, have crept into their life and kind of tainted them and broken down the fellowship that they used to have with the Lord. They just don't feel the Lord like they used to. The Word doesn't come alive like it used to. When they pray, it just doesn't seem like those prayers are going anywhere. Because they've been running with the enemy. They've been giving in and giving up, been throwing in the towel, saying, you can't beat them, join them. I give up. I'm tired. I'm tired of trying to live right. Wow. Some of us in this room, it needs to be homologeo. It needs to just simply, we need to get specific. We need to say, Lord, I confess to you this sin, this thought. I confess to you what I watched, what I did, what I said. I confess to you, Lord, what I did this past week. I'm ashamed of it. God, I agree with you. Cleanse me. Wash my feet, Jesus. Some in this room need to plant their life here. What a great church. What great worship. What a great group of people. So Lord, whatever that decision is, may you, dear Lord, help us to make the right decision. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.